0: they firmly believe that one day the wall will come down and i say how can you how can you hold on to that hope you know when you see this day after day after day and they just say we just believe it will i mean and maybe you have to have that hope to keep working you know i mean that's the only thing that keeps you going
1: this is a podcast called walk talk listen Yes. Good day, everybody. This is another episode, a special episode um, of, of a series of episodes that I'm doing because at the end of March, I will be walking for the 11th time on 100-mile walk in the Seattle area. Um, so what I try to do uh, during those special episodes, that talk with with people that I closely work with um, or that I know that they're also passionate about ending hunger, poverty, and injustice in the world. So um I, I'm really glad to, with today's guest and, and um we got to know each other even better a couple of weeks ago when we were on a uh, a trip uh, to Guatemala to see the projects of Growing Hope Globally and of uh churchful service as well. Um but as always my guest will introduce you know themselves. So please go ahead, uh Jim and Linda. I'm Jim Rufnock from Archibald, Ohio. Uh
2: I'm a farmer, I grew up on a farm, lived at the same place all but about 10 years of my life. When soon after Linda and I were married, we lived in different places. So the farm has been my life. And uh, today I'm trying to do less of it because Mm -hmm. our sons are part of the farm. Uh, We have a family farm that amounts to my brother Myself, our two sons, and his son, mm-hmm. uh, so it would be considered a family farm. And we raise crops, corn and soybeans and wheat, and uh, and we feed cattle. So that's kind of who Jim is. Uh, agriculture's been my life. I, I live it, sleep it, go to Guatemala with it, <laughs> and all that. Yeah, you know and, so.
1: Yeah, and and Jim, um, is it something that your parents did as well, or are you the first generation?
2: No, that's a good question because uh, our son lives on the farm that my grandfather and grandmother moved to, so he'd be like a fourth generation on that farm.
0: Mm.
2: So uh, I mean, we have history here. And uh, we live, we lived where my folks moved when they got married, and uh, and today our youngest son lives there. So, yeah, there's history there. And uh...
1: yeah, no, that that's great. Your wife though is, you know, is not a farmer. Well, she's a farmer now, right? But, <laughs> well, but sort uh, of. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, Linda, tell tell a little bit about your upbringing, from where and you know, um, how you got involved with this farm and and, uh, what you have been doing before that.
0: Okay, so my name is Linda Rufenakt, and I grew up here in Archbold in Northwest Ohio also, Mm -hmm. but I grew up in town. I was a uh, Mennonite pastor's daughter, and so, um, but I had grandparents on the farm, so we had a farming history in our family as well. Um, I went to Goshen College and got a degree in home economics education. And did teach for a few years. Um, then I was a stay-at-home mom for our two sons for a few years. Mm-hmm. And then I took a job as manager of the quilt shop at Souter Village. And I did that for about 24 years and then retired at what some people would consider early so that we could participate in some short-term service projects mm-hmm. um, through the in the winter months when Jim wasn't quite so busy on the farm. And so and I currently volunteer year-round, like at our local 10,000 Villages store, which is a fair trade store that um, kind of yeah, you know, well supports artisans around the world. Um, kind of doing the craft side of things, like Growing Hope works in the agricultural mm-hmm. part of things, so people can support their families. And so I work there a few days a month, and that's also part of MCC, our Mennonite Central Committee. So that's, and how I got involved with Growing Hope was mainly because Jim got involved with Growing Hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's lots of support services that uh, (laughs) need to be done. And, you know, and I, but I do really believe in its mission, you know, of helping people help themselves and, and making them food sustainable. And especially since we've done some traveling and where you can really see Mm -hmm. people, individuals, hear their stories. And that's really affirming to to the work that we do and, you know, is energizing, I think, to actually meet people and walk and talk with them and Mm -hmm. get to know people who are impacted by the work that you do.
1: No. And, and, you know, um, I have to tell my listeners Jim and Linda I'm really passionate about all of this I mean it's not for nothing that they quickly skipped you know their personal lives and went into the organization I I, I, think we are still interested how did you get involved with each other then how did that happen where did you find each other
0: <laughs> oh dear um, well I was at college. he was mm-hmm. home farming um, and so I came home in the summers and we were attend, both attending the same young adult Bible study, and that's where I first met Jim. Um, prior to that, his his mom, my, our mothers, had recruit, they recruited me to sell Fuller Brush products, a door-to-door salesman for oh, his okay. mom. And so I knew his mom before I knew him, but I really hated that job.
2: <laughs> I, think she, I think she likes me better than my mom. That's, good. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good thing, right? Yeah.
0: Good thing, but... Yeah, that was not my calling. Let's just put it that yeah. way. You know, door yeah. to door sales was not my calling. Mm-hmm. So, um, but then, I mean, we met through that Bible study and one night he asked me to go water skiing and I said, yes. And that was the beginning of mm. all of that. So,
1: and 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 Linda told me, you know, because for you then when you got married, you had to um, yeah, be part of the farm. And sure. and um, so you did you continue your own work or did you really become part of all the or all the work that is related with farming?
0: No, I did never really. I did not do much tractor driving. Very little of that or that sort of thing. Actual field work or working on the farm. You know, I was teaching school in our first years of marriage, and you know, I took meals to the field and I, you know, a lot of ran errands and got parts and all kinds of things like that. But as far as actually working in the field, I did very little of that sort of thing.
3: Mm.
1: Okay, um, I would like to go to to you, Jim. In you know, what 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 makes you so passionate about farming? What is it? You know.
2: Oh, that's a good question.
1: <laughs>
2: it, it, part of it, and I said it. It's been my life. You know, that's that's who I am. It, mm-hmm. I grew up with it. I. I lived it, I thought about it all the time, but yeah, what is, what keeps me thriving? Uh, You know, I, I, as I look about, you know, I see a need for food Mm -hmm. and and that's kind of our, our passion is to feed people Mm -hmm. and, and to see a crop grow or to see a, Animal grow, that's a rewarding thing for me. There's nothing I love to plant, but harvest is the real deal, mm. you know. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what drives me yeah. on. Oh. I think okay. you know that feeling of
1: accomplishment through growing stuff. Mm. Sure. And and is that also something that? Grew upon you, uh, Linda. Do you have this, you know, now the same type of wonderment or or passion or or less so?
0: It's it is so much our life that it's mm-hmm. you know it's hard to say I don't. Although, you know, without being as involved on the farm as Jim, I I don't know if I would say I'm quite as passionate as he is about it. But you know, with raising two sons and him farming together, you know, all our dinner conversations revolved around farming, and yeah. you know. That was okay, but I got tired of it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There could be quite a point of life than that. but yeah, but it's it is who we are and mm-hmm. and I'm certainly very supportive of that and and what they do and and I think it's really cool that our sons are both full-time in the farms and our grandkids are mm-hmm. certainly interested in farming, and it's certainly a a value system that's great to pass down to the mm-hmm. next generation
1: what, what I I wanted to ask you, Jim. Is um, if you compare it when you started it, you know, when you were young and, and when you ultimately took over the farm, and you compare it with how you work, you know, today and what the issues are, is it similar or are there big changes? And if there are changes, you know, what are those changes?
2: Sure, it obviously is not the same. You know, I started full time in 1972. So I've been farming for about 51 years as a occupation. Before then it was with my dad too, you know, so uh, you know, it's, it's totally it's a lot different. Yet at the same time, you depend on weather, you depend on um, other people. of the agribusiness group that we work with they are important to us uh that part hasn't changed the volume and stuff has changed Mm -hmm. you know as i think about it back in 1980 a farmer fed around 70 people Mm -hmm. today a farmer feeds 155 so that the scope and the size has changed you know as as I look at it, uh, you know, dad and I probably were farming three, 400 acres hmm. when I started, when I took on some ground. And hmm. he was milking cows at that time, and we fed some hogs. Today, we feed only cattle and, uh, and Quite a few of them actually, but mm-hmm. also at the same time, here we are supporting six households too mm-hmm. with one operation. I think, and that's that's what I see somewhat of the difference. There's an efficiency that farmers have put into play here. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not talking about buying things cheap and selling high. I'm talking about taking their assets. And and using them very wisely and able to spread them over space and time, you know. So you know, instead of having five sets of equipment, Roof and Farms has one set of equipment, which is way more efficient. It lets us use new technologies mm-hmm. that we had none, you know, when I started. There once technology mattered whether the tractor starters started or didn't start you know oh. today it's about how much fertilizers being put on it's how much grain we're harvesting on the second mm-hmm. you know it, it, all that technology makes a difference and and that's one reason why i'm glad to see the boys take over so that i don't have to know all that stuff <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, i get it hey and uh, but jim um we also talked during our trip to Guatemala, and we will talk a little bit later about that. But but um, I, you know, I, I was listening to you, and you were you are also concerned about uh, the whole sustainability uh, issues that are going on. So you really follow closely what is happening and and the changes that you might have to make or not make. Um, so that's also a difference, I, I think, right? If you compare that when when you started or not. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, sure is absolutely is, you know, in nineteen seventy two we didn't think about sustainability. It was all about profitability. Today, sustainability is a part of our language, you know, and and we mm-hmm. look at it in that way. You know, soil health and animal health and that kind of stuff sustains us. You know, mm-hmm. we're not mining. The ground we're sustaining it whether it's adding chemical fertilizers whether it's putting on steer manure I mean all that all that plays into whether we're sustainable or not including grass buffer strips along the creeks and uh, and structures that keep the ground from washing into the creeks I it it's just huge, you know, the investment that we make to be sustainable. And and I think we are, but that's that's a great question and a pertinent question for all of us today. We all should be thinking about that, whether I'm a because I'm a farmer, I think about it. Well, anybody else should be thinking about it the same way.
1: what i what i wanted to ask you i mean you know i'm from the netherlands and there um you know from the government side there are a lot of new regulations for the farmers and and as a result a lot of protests and um, because you know i i think one of the reasons is or maybe the most important reason is that uh you know there were no conversations with the farmers so it's it's just from one day to another you have to change and and there are examples in other countries in the world where, in Denmark, for uh, for example, where the government was much more talking with the farmers, and there, use yeah, there are far less problems as far as I can see. How is that going? You know, for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's government regulations. So far, they haven't been overly burdensome. Plus, the government helps, say, pay for them to some extent. The thing that we might have, and I don't know what they have in the Netherlands, is, say, like, Farm Bureau is a, a agency that is a political uh, activist for a farmer, you know, which is actively lobbying in government, whether it's state or, or national government. Um, there's other agencies, but that would be one that would come to my mind right mm-hmm. away. You know we're part of that. We have input directly to them. If I want to talk to them, I can call them on the phone right now. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that conversation is more there than maybe not anyway. Yeah. So
1: yeah, okay. Well, that, that that's that's uh, that's good to good to hear. Um, I would like to go slowly to you know the organization that we are both uh, involved with. Uh, you know, we are both. Uh, Board members of an organization called Growing Hope, and the listeners who did not listen to the episode that I did with the executive director uh, Max Finberg, you know, should really listen to that one. <laughs> um, so I don't, I, I don't want to go too much into you know what what Growing Hope globally is about. What I would like to talk with both of you uh, about, and you alluded a little bit in the beginning, is you know how did you get involved with growing hope globally and why um and what did it do you know to you as as a couple and as a family um because i know you know those experiences that you you know got through growing hope yeah were were uh, important I, I think and and uh, and how you looked at certain issues so um just one comment about uh, to the listeners who did not listen to the episode with Max yet is that so a Growing Hope uh, globally is is an NGO uh, that works both with uh, NGOs like mine that work around the world, you know, with uh, vulnerable communities, among others, also f- uh, farmers and especially uh, female uh, farmers. Um, but it also works with farmers in the US who then you know, are what we call doing, you know, growing projects. So basically, simply said, it's part of the harvest, you know, you sell and the money you give to Growing Hope and they use it to support uh, food security programs around the world. Do I summarize that properly? And maybe not.
2: (laughs) It's good
1: okay it's good. okay so so yeah mm-hmm. can you tell the listeners a bit about you know how did you get involved why and and what do you do exactly
2: okay I mean for us to get involved, we got contacted by MCC which is Mennonite Center Committee, preferably the Church World Service and uh, also luckily here at Archibald we're close one of the founding people of, mm-hmm. of growing hope back then as food resource Bank uh Vernon Sloan and they got us together and over a meal that we bought for ourselves <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and told us about it you know and and explained it to us you know and and I think the draw to the farmer is that we can do something that we're really good at and and give it and give it as you know, to some extent, it's an expense. it's all, it's an expense to us, so it's tax deductible in in that sense, that ain't a very I wouldn't say that as the main reason at all, but but it's something that farmers can grab a hold of and and be a part of. you know mm-hmm. farmers are long assets and short cash. So they could give asset here. Mm-hmm. In, in a in a good way. and I think that was kind of how we got started. We were kind of notorious for starting the first beef growing project here at Archibald. So that was kind of new. Typically, it was field crops. so
1: And then, as a result of being part of of growing hope, uh, you were also able to visit uh, you know projects around the world.
3: Uh, Linda,
1: tell, tell about that, you know, how, how was that?
0: Yeah, we well, we've been to Kenya um, with a small group and also now just recently to Guatemala. Um, and I think, you know, I, I just wish everybody could go, you know, to those kind of places and see what's really happening. I mean, when you go and, and you, you actually meet people um, and talk with them and, and listen to them and hear their stories, um, I think you can't come home unchanged. I mean, you, because you've heard something from someone else's point of view. And, you know, we've always lived right here in Northwest Ohio. So we know how people think here, right? And what our lives are like here. But when, you've, when you really get to know people from somewhere else um, whose life stories are so different from yours um, and whose culture is so different from yours, I think, you know, it changes you the way you think. And It also changes the way you feel, um, changes your, you know, changes your mind about that. Maybe there aren't, you know, maybe I don't have all the answers. You know, I don't have all the right ways to do things. Mm-hmm. And it also um, kind of changes your heart, gives you more compassion, I think, for for other people in other situations. Um, that would be the main thing that I can think of. You know, it's just, it's just. I wish everybody could take opportunities to to expose yourself to those kinds of experiences whether it's either when people come to the united states and you can get to know people or you know if you can go i think it would it would make us all better people you know more world conscious and and understanding
1: So so those visits, were they giving you, you know, hope or more, you know, woody? or both? Um, <laughs> uh,
0: maybe both. You know, I think when we went to Kenya, there's been quite a few, I don't even remember, was it 2007, something like that? Um, I think that gave me a lot more hope. I mean, you saw people who really wanted to work hard and to improve themselves it wasn't just a handout they weren't just sitting there waiting you know for somebody to take care of them i think it gave me hope that you know we could do something that mattered you know that what we were doing really did make a difference in a lot of people's lives um i didn't come back from from kenya with much concern and guatemala gave me a few more concerns than that you Mm -hmm. know the whole you seem to see much more corruption and people who had been through a lot more trauma Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing there. And, and then it gives you a little bit of feeling like, how do you, how do you get past all of that? You know, how do you, how do you develop policy or programs that, that can get past all of that? Although the people themselves were quite inspiring, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, when you could actually talk to, to the farmers, um, That although it took two translators (laughs) to get that done, (laughs) Um, yeah, those stories—you know—hearing their life stories and and their experiences were really were really inspiring. But then you hear all the other stuff about government and policy and everything, and it's it's like, wow, how how do you work with all of that, yeah, you know, and make it and make really good things happen?
1: Yeah, And, and just a quick note for the listeners. Because I was also on the trip, and and we went together to see, you know, the indigenous community in in Guatemala, who were, you know, have been, um, yeah, murdered actually for for the, you know, for long for many many years, and and uh, excluded from participating in in you know, uh, politics, name it. So so a lot of you know traumatization chased out of the area where they grew up um, and some of them have been able to come back and restart their lives, but it is not uh, easy for them at all. I mean yeah, it's, it's it's still very difficult um, and and uh, for what what for me was really inspiring is to see you know the, the role of, of women who really, many of them were outspoken and uh, you know a lot of pride, in what they do and what they have accomplished so so uh, at least I came back uh, with that um, but I wanted to ask you so after the visit to Kenya and after the visit to Guatemala and you come back in your community and then you have stories and um, how is that going you know are you able to tell the stories do people uh, want to hear your story and if they want to hear it yeah it's, it's are you able to inspire them with your experiences your community or is that
0: yeah I think we hear we feel a real openness to hearing the story. People will ask, you know, so how was your trip? And they would just want to know, you know what we did and what went on. After we came back from Kenya, um, we what we actually visited the growing, I mean, the project that our growing project supported. So we did a program at church with slides and talked uh, one Sunday evening, and uh, a lot of people came. I mean, all the people who supported, we're supporting growing hope. Here, wanted to hear, mm-hmm. you know, what was really going on and see the stories, and and that that was really, really a good experience. Um, and and since we're home now, we've only been home a few weeks, but because we were in Arizona for a whole month. But a lot of people have asked me anyway, what mm-hmm. you know, what did you do, what did you see, what do you think, you know? Mm-hmm. And i really open to hearing that. There are, you know, as in all communities in the world these days, there are divisions, you know, in the way people think and approach things. So there have been a few people who have, who have, well, this was more based on like when we worked with the immigrants in uh, Tucson, but, you know, people would say, hey, weren't you afraid? I mean, they're based on the fear of, you know, what people, mm-hmm. what they think immigrants, who they think immigrants are, um, you know, and and so there is some fear-based mm-hmm. kind of things going on as well. And so I guess telling the story, hopefully we can show another side of that, you know mm-hmm. or another another aspect of that and and maybe help to open their minds a little bit to other possibilities as well. Mm-hmm. But in general, I would say most people are are affirming um, want to hear the stories, want to want to learn what they can um, from our experiences. Mm-hmm.
1: Outside of going to Kenya as well as Guatemala, you also now have have gone uh, and worked at, on the border in uh, in the US, right? Tell tell about you know why you decided to do that and and how that was. What type of experience was that? Was it similar to Kenya? Different? Um, what did you learn? What were you surprised about?
0: You know, after after spending a well, this is our second winter that we worked at an immigration welcome center run by the Catholic Church in Tucson, and we go for about a month um, in the month of February. And then after the trip to Guatemala and everything, we we thought going to the border would help us maybe to get a fuller picture. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen Guatemala and some of the forces that push people to immigration. We'd met with people in tucson uh, heard some stories there of people who were coming through and trying to um trying to immigrate and families as well as young adults and all kinds of different people so we thought going to the border would help to kind of fill out some of that the bigger picture for us and it did Uh, we spent two days there with a couple who who work with with immigrants um just across the border in Agua Prietas. And they live in Douglas, which is, you know, right, it's like one city, but divided by the country line. Um, and, we, and we saw some different things there that, like one of the places they work is at a, I don't know what they call it, a resource center or something, um, where it's like just steps away from the gate in the wall where, the, where they put the people back through that they've rejected from mm-hmm. going across. And so you know they work there um, with them. So we spent a little time there. Um, we spent some time just walking along the wall uh, on both sides, the Mexican side and the U.S. side, um, walking and praying and talking. You know about just your impressions of how. I mean, just seeing that wall stretching up the mountain for miles. You know, in a cleared path beside it, and and all the lights and the cameras and everything that are all over it. I mean, it's. I don't know. It just is so, so sad, I think, you know, what's going on and and how much fear plays into that. You know, everybody's fear. Our fear, um, immigrants fear the border patrol. I mean, they're working off of fear-based thing too, in my mind, you know, it's, and then, you know, the cartel is there watching. I mean, we saw the, humongous houses in Douglas where the cartel no it wasn't Douglas it was Agua this wasn't it? Yeah. Where the cartel, they say, oh yeah, those are cartel members' houses. You know, and you, you see the you see all of that. And it's I I don't know. It's very sobering, I would say, in a way. Um you know because you know you hear the stories, I mean, I mean the friends of ours there, I mean they talk with Border Patrol, they'll, you know, they'll Talk and work with anybody uh, on all parts of that. and I mean they say they firmly believe that one day the wall will come down and I say, how can you how can you hold on to that hope you know when you see this day after day after day and they just say we just believe it will. I mean, and maybe you have to have that hope to keep working, you know I mean that's the only thing that keeps you going. but um you know and the thing is you know my main thing that I came back with was, the more I learn, you know, we and we learn bits and pieces from all three of those locations. The more I realize I know so little, you know, it, it's so complicated and so involved that, I mean, I'm glad to know what I know. And it seems like every viewpoint that I hear has a nugget of truth in it. But then none of them have the total big picture. And how do we bring that all together? Mm-hmm. And and make policy for those people who make policies, or, or, yeah. And how what? How do you do that? I don't that I do not know. But I mean, it's it's a good thing to think about and to pray about, you know, mm-hmm. as we go forward.
1: Yeah, uh, Jim. Can you th- thanks for that, Linda. Um, yeah. it, uh, Jim, can you um tell then? You know what what did you do during a month? Well, because you you guys really worked there, right? I mean, it's not oh, yeah, it, it was not <laughs> a vacation. So
2: yeah, we we worked at an immigration center and basically fed meals at noon to uh, those people coming through there. Hmm. Uh, during the time we were there this year, it was common to see 200 plus people coming through the center they don't stay there but they come and go through and the center helps them to to find transportation to their sponsors and and that type of thing so we did that this year we did it two days a week the other two days we actually worked in the diaper bank of southern arizona and did uh orders and stuff for nonprofit organizations that use them for, uh, supplies. So that was kind of our thing. Uh, uh, yeah, it was typically, you know, we went there, you know, to work in the sun and, <laughs> and do stuff like that. And it was, the weather was nicer than Ohio. Usually.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a combination, it's of a
2: combination all- of being able to go, where the weather's nicer and and find a volunteer place that feels good to work at.
1: Hmm. No, I, I I really think it's great that you have been doing that now uh, twice. Um. Okay. No. Thank you so much for for sharing those experiences. I, I find it really inspiring. Um, always when I meet with people that are, you know, willing to push their own horizon, you know, to to widen their perspectives and to learn from others. I, I wish, you know, more people would do that. It's one of the reasons that I've started this podcast also to, you know, to share the different perspectives of different people I talk with. And and I hope that people what people will get, and I think also something that you have learned, there is yes, there are differences. There are different perspectives, but there are also there is also a lot that people have in common. And if we would focus on that, you know, you can start a dialogue, and the dialogue is the should be the beginning of of making this world a better a little bit better. Um, so that's that's my that's my hope. Um, I, I would like to bring you both to to the walk um, because this podcast is a spin off of my walk that I started more than ten years ago, and at the end of the month I will go again. I don't know why. Because uh, <laughs> I'm not in good shape, but um, um yeah. W- when I'm walking with others, um, it it becomes a spiritual experience. It's kind of strange, but you start talking about you know, thinking about life and this and that. And then when I'm accompanied by other people, um, we often talk not only about spirituality but also about the next generation and, and that there are. Some people are saying they're different. Others are saying no, it's similar. Uh, my my question to you is: What do you see happening in your own community among youth and spirituality, among youth and religion? You know. Yeah, we're
2: we're not so active with youth other than our grandkids and stuff like that. But I think there's a definite interest in religion, spirituality, however you want to say it. Uh I, I think compared to when I was young I would say they're more in tune with that than I may have been and uh, and I'm encouraged, you know, to be around them and and the openness that they show, you know, to talk about God and mm-hmm. things in their life and how that affects them and why they do what they do to some extent I think they're more open to that than I may have been hmm. so I was. I feel good about that you know I just was involved with the selecting of Boag teachers in the local school and 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 uh, children at the children or young folks that were there hmm. with us I just totally am impressed with the ability to articulate themselves and, and, and be able to talk about serious things, you know, Mm -hmm. where I'm
1: not sure I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, you know, when you come back or when you just came back from the border or from Guatemala, do you also have talks with, with them? And then what, how do they react if, if, if you do have conversations with them about your experience? Even if it's only your own, you know, grandchildren. So uh...
2: that's a good question. I, you know, we we talk about it off and on in conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't sat them down and said, "Here, now, what do you think about this?" I would I would say that they're interested in what's going on. I think my fear is that they're not hearing what they ought to hear about it. Mm. I I think uh, whether it's media, social media, whatever they're watching, I think can be very slanted, and I don't like to hear that. I think I, I would say that. I think what we've seen and what I hear on news and social media, mm-hmm. it's not what
1: I've seen. Um, are, are younger people also uh, aware that you're doing it? Are they part of the growing project um, or not?
0: Well, we have the, the local FFA does the books mm-hmm. for yeah. for the growing project. So, I mean, their their teacher is part of the growing project. And so he is, yeah, he's kind of set that up with the kids. So, I mean, in that way, there is some awareness of that. And some of the younger adults have done like the chores with the cattle and that sort of thing. They volunteered their time for that um, and may come and help set up like at the celebration, the annual celebration. Um, as far as donating to I know, not so much necessarily, I mean, they don't have the fund, that kind of funds usually. Um, I think they're aware that it's going on, um, and there's an openness to doing, you know some things with that. We're hoping to get them to uh, the local FFA to uh, grill the burgers for our annual meeting this summer, and, you know, just trying in those kind of ways to get them involved in and introduced to i guess what we're doing um Mm -hmm. in hopes that yeah they will someday want to pick that up as well
1: okay okay i want to see in a a different direction and 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 that has to do with uh, music is very important to me so i always have a music question as well so and and most people find this the most difficult question I'm always yeah. asking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought. So it is if I ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies for the big part what the two of you are about, what song or piece of music would that be and why? And if it is too difficult to come up with a piece of music for the two of you, you can also do it you know separate.
2: Well, let's uh, go separate once okay.
1: Okay, okay
2: <laughs> <clears throat> you know, yeah. growing up Mennonite, we sang hymns. Okay, yes, it's that is part of my heritage and, mm-hmm. and where my music goes to a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm going to say two songs here. You know, the song "How Great Thou Art." You know, know demonstrates know. my thought of God and how awesome He is and in in nature and, and in farming, you know, that, that kind of describes that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, I've sang to myself pretty often, and it's Precious Lord Take My Hand. And that was brought about through a tragedy we had with a business partner at the elevator that was tragically killed. Mm -hmm. And I used that song on a welcome at his funeral. Mm -hmm. So that song has went through my mind hundreds of times since then. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I can't hardly not say that. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: (laughs) I like the song. It's got a good message to it. And uh, that's where I would go.
1: Mm. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Well, I had also thought of the uh, How Great Thou Art hymn, um, for a variety of reasons, but probably the one that came to mind the most, and I'm not sure if it totally relates to this question, was just a simple little scripture song, um, created, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, because I think, you know, the attitudes that, with which we come at all these things um, really make a difference, and and that would be my... Prayer that I can, yeah, have the attitude of God as I live my life and and reach out to others as well.
1: Okay, can you? Sorry, because you you went too fast for me. Can you repeat Uh-oh. the title?
0: Oh, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. Okay. I don't right. know what scripture is that that refers back to. I don't have that reference in hand. Mm-hmm.
3: But, yeah.
0: But it is on the- it's the a song somewhere yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah well, what what I, I try to do is is I, I search for those songs on on spotify and we have made a special um walk talk listen uh playlist so all the songs that are, have been chosen by my uh, guest uh you can listen to them if i can find them so and if they're there but i'm sure they are um yeah i Jim, maybe this is a question to you because um, I don't have only listeners in the U.S. Um, so I think my question to you is, if I ask you to come up with, uh, you know, what you would like to tell to the global audience about the U.S. and U.S. farming in particular. Yeah, what what, what is it that you would like to share?
2: The U.S. farmers looking at a global market. Very much so, Uh, whether it be second, third world countries, or China, or whoever it is, we look at a global market and and grow into that uh, here in the United States. Uh, Like I mentioned before, you know, the American farmers feeding 155 people worldwide. And some people say, well, that's not necessarily important. Well, yes, it is, because let's think just a little bit in the last year, with the threat of the Ukraine crop not being shipped, what has happened? All of a sudden, we feel like we might have a food shortage, and especially in those countries that need it, okay? United States didn't have food shortages, per se. But I think a lot of African countries became very concerned about where they food is coming from. Here in the United States, uh, in the last year, we lost almost 2 million acres to urbanization or something, you know. We dropped them acres and and we lost 9,350 farmers too out of the deal. So we got 2 million farmers doing 893 million acres, you know, average size of the farm is 446 acres. So I think the American farmer is very efficient. I've, I've mentioned that before. I think we're doing the best job we can. We have things that make it easier for us in, in uh, infrastructure that some of the other countries don't have uh, that makes us more productive. And uh, I think U.S. farmers care about the world.
1: Yeah, and 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 actually, many farmers, especially those who are involved with the growing hope projects, I mean, they exemplify that, right? And that's absolutely really impressive. Yeah. Um, what I also and we are slowly coming to the end of a conversation. But what I wanted to ask you, I mean, you are lucky in a sense that um, you know your farm is is ultimately will be taken care of by your children. Not all farmers have that. That's what I understood. Um, I just morning I talked with another farmer, and that seems to be a, a problem. Children don't want to take over the, the the farm. So, yeah, you have any advice? You know for the other farmers who don't have children and and, uh, what should happen?
2: have two sons that really want to farm. It's that (laughs) simple. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I think that's, that is a problem, you know, and and I think we've seen Maurice in, in years after say 1980 or so, young folks didn't come back to the farm because farming was tough. Today, Farming is profitable and, and we are profitable in what we're doing. You know, To some extent, you gotta be innovative and see once where that niche is kinda. Uh, everybody wants to drive a tractor. Everybody wants to do that. That's simple and easy. We can all do that, but to figure out how to make money and, and be profitable and smart in your expenditures, that takes management, and and I think we are blessed with that kind of uh, people coming behind us. And, and your mindsets, yeah, yeah, the mindset. Uh, I I have friends that you know don't have sons that want to do that, you know, and and they're retiring. That's okay, but I really like where I'm at. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm very serious when I say that. Uh, I, I appreciate my sons really, really a lot and and their ability to step in behind me and say, I can do this. And mm-hmm. and it takes two things. It takes money and it takes the ability to handle risk. I mean, there's huge risk in this thing. You know, let's just it takes a special person to do that
0: it... and it takes a lot of hard work they put in a lot of hours you know you have to be yeah. willing to work really hard and long you know you're not going to have a 9 to 5 job when mm. you're far yeah. and i think i think that's an issue for some people as well you know i mean what kind of lifestyle do they want to live mm.
1: okay my, my my last question um is about Uh, taking taking us again to Guatemala for for a second and um because there we saw a lot of farmers as well what what impressed you most you know what you've seen there
2: yeah I have to think about that a little bit you know I think I think we've seen their willingness to learn and adapt to what might be for them I mean they have Yeah, they grow crops on places that I wouldn't do that. I would let the deer eat it or something. You know, it was we seen them grow corn on steep hills. uh you know, in my United States mentality, it was very difficult to see that happen. But I was very impressed with the ability to adapt within who they were and what they had to offer to uh, change and uh, and do that. You know, we've seen that they adapted to having a few pigs. We've seen a few pigs, which is, I think, new to them, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, and even the sheep was somewhat new. So we've seen sheep and pigs being introduced that, uh, you know, ate stuff that typically went to waste, you know. Mm -hmm. So I I see that kind of ability to adapt. Mm was encouraging to me.
0: Well, that's kind of, what I was thinking too, the willing to be innovative and to, and I think the fact that they they want to share what they learn then with their neighbors. I mean, they don't just keep that newfound knowledge to themselves, but they're willing to, you know, share that and, and help other people also, you know, improve their lives. And because um, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's teaching on, different way, I mean, different farming techniques than what they were used to, which they have adapted pretty well, and new crops even, I think. So, you know, and then to share that knowledge and to let it spread to the whole neighborhood, um, the community, is is a great thing.
1: Any last message or question or, um, you know, statement for the listeners from you? No, I, 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 well covered that. I, I think <laughs> we
2: covered a lot of things. Appreciate the chance to a part of this and uh thank you maurice for leading us through this
1: <laughs> thank you for you know your willingness to talk with me i i know you were scared <laughs> which, which i don't understand because you know the the we have been through a lot already in guatemala we, i'm not you know, scared
0: to talk to you i just you know, <laughs> you know being interviewed is not my favorite thing
1: <laughs> you did you both did great. I really appreciate <laughs> telling your story. I, I find your story inspiring. I, I, uh, I think it's great what the two of you are doing, um, you know, for your own community, but also for, for the rest of the world. And, and uh, yeah, thank you so much.
3: With over 1,100 miles walked, Maurice is yet again training to walk 100 more. So for those of you who aren't familiar, which if you're an avid listener, I'm sure you are, The 100 Mile Hunger Walk was started in 2012 by Maurice to raise funds and awareness to fight hunger and poverty around the world. This annual event came to be because Maurice was inspired by the spirit of volunteerism behind the CWS-sponsored Crop Hunger Walks, which are a community-organized charity event that takes place in over 500 locations across the U.S. each year. So because of this, Maurice decided to set out on his own journey and put his feet where his heart was. This year's 100 Mile Walk will take place from Monday, March 26th, to Saturday, April 1st, in Seattle, Washington. And on top of that, our fundraising campaign will run until the end of the summer. All the proceeds will go to support CWS's global programs that work to create a world where there is enough for all. So, how does 100 Mile work? Well, each year, Bloom walks 100 miles through CWS and crop communities and spends his time meeting with our crop volunteer teams, with beneficiaries, with local community members, political officials, students, artists and other like-minded individuals, like yourself, will work to support their community and hunger and promote a healthy and nutritious lifestyle. This year's theme is centered around the inner development goals. The idea behind these is that we must first unlock and grow our inner capacity, skills, and abilities to fully materialize humanitarian transformation. These IDGs are guiding principles that help us achieve our goals as we work with local communities Here in the U.S. as well as in the 60 plus countries that we work in to help end hunger and poverty while building healthy communities through increased nutritious lifestyles, especially for children. So what are some ways that you can get involved? Well, for those in the Seattle area, you can come out and walk with us for a mile, maybe two, or you can see how long you last. But don't worry, you can always come out and just say hi, meet with Maurice, have a chat, and then send him on his way. So on top of that, another easy way to get involved is to make a donation. Participants are also able to start their own fundraising page to continue their efforts by reaching out to their own communities to get involved as well. So to make a donation or start your own fundraising page, click the link. Well, of course, you're wondering where. Go
1: to the podcast notes and click in the links.
3: In other exciting news, this year, Maurice has been chosen to be an ambassador for Knox Gear. Knox gear is a brand company who makes safety and visibility gear for people and their pets, love we'll to walk run, play sports, or anyone who lives an active or outdoor lifestyle. And
1: yes, you're right. Also, this link can be found in the podcast notes.
3: When the link is used to make any Knox Gear purchase, 10% of the total purchase will be donated back to support CWS hunger and nutrition programs. So for anybody interested in joining us, getting more involved, or simply just wanting to stay connected, you can send us an email at innovationhub@cwsglobal.org. at cwsglobal.org.
1: You're right. You can find the link again in the podcast notes.
3: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, if you haven't already, become a Walk Talk Listen subscriber. So let's get walking together. And don't forget to hashtag go the extra hundred mile.
1: Thank you for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram